0: Uh, chapter 3, which I think you will find has some surprises in it. Uh, one, what I'm going to call the sting in the tail. So stay awake till we get to the end and you'll discover what the sting in the tail is. Um, Paul starts off by saying there will be terrible times. Well, surely it was pretty terrible in Paul's day. Uh, things are pretty awful. Opposition has certainly been widespread. Opposition by the Romans who wanted to control everything and everybody in sight. An opposition from the Jews who certainly wanted to stop any growth of the church and obliterate the church completely. Um, but the last days, the whole phrase, the last days, is really uh, the whole of the period from the ascension to the second coming. I've given you Michael Green's quote. I've written it down there because it's a little bit complicated to make sure you can follow it. Between the first day of the last days and the last day of the last days is where we are now. We are in the last days, and we'll go on being in the last days. Incidentally, um, I don't know how long it is since you were con- go, were converted, but uh, for me that was, what, 53 years ago, 56 years ago. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come back the day before you were converted? Aren't you glad he delayed his return that day so that you could be converted? Had, had he returned the day before you were converted, that's it, it's all up. That's why he waits, isn't it? He, longing, longing for more to repent and come to faith. I remember Morris Wood at Oak Hill used to have this lovely picture of the seventh trumpeter dying to blow the trumpet and God wouldn't let him. Can I blow it now? No, 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 don't. I think there's one over here just about to repent, he would say. Can I blow it? No, 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 there's one over there just about to repent. Don't blow it yet. Hang on, don't blow it yet. There's the seventh trumpeter dying to blow it and God won't let him because somebody else might be converted. It's a lovely picture of God so longs to have well he must have all the elect in with him but he just well, longs for more to repent so we are in the last days uh, and Paul is Timothy teaching Timothy how to deal with it it's a, it's a present thing now have nothing to do with it uh, with, the, with, this, uh, with error and controversy which is going on and so it's clear the last days Timothy was in them and we're still in them And, in fact, one of the biggest shocks, perhaps, in this chapter comes at the end of verse 5, where he says, um, having said, having nothing to do with them, it's it's having the form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, this paragraph is not a moan about how bad the world is. We might talk about folk religion, the idea of a man in the street who wants to be thought godly, but uh, doesn't let it interfere with his life such things as going to church or anything like that but of course we're all Christians aren't with that that's not actually what Paul is talking about you see that wouldn't have been so in Paul's theory. there was no such thing as a man in the street type religion you were either in the church or you were not in the church and the shock is that this paragraph is actually about the church Paul is talking having the form of godliness they look like holy people but this is what is going on Now that pulls us up short, because he's not just talking about those horrible unbelievers who don't come near us. They're talking about the people sitting next to us in the pews, who can be like this. The church has come out of the world, but has the world come out of the church? It is still part of the world that is actually controlling. The lifestyle of the church, you see, is meant to be very, very different from the world So that we are seen to be different. That, of course, will attract opposition. People don't like us to be different. They want conformity. But God says, no, you're to live a different life. If this sort of behavior, and only if, if this sort of behavior is seen in the church circles, then that is a cause for alarm, and it should bother us. The line between being in Christ and in the world, should be clearly seen. As we've already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 9, we call to a holy life, which is a distinct life, a separate life, different from the world around us. And it's not hard to see why, when we look at some of the detailed words of this parish, of this paragraph, four loves, the loves of self, loves of money, lovers of pleasure, and then finally lovers of God. Three great idolatries which rival God for being first. What is the first and great commandment was to put God first and everything else second. If God is not first, we've committed the greatest sin because we've broken the first commandment. It's very consistent right through the scriptures. What did, what did Eve see when she looked at the, at, the, at the fruit, the food she was not supposed to touch? The tree they are not supposed to touch. She saw it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and to be desired to make one wise. And how does John describe that in his first epistle? The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life you see it's as old as sin itself this coming away Jesus in fact said the word of God and the kingdom of God would be opposed how would the word of the kingdom be opposed it's opposed by the seed on the path which the devil comes and gets rid of as soon as he can it's opposed by the rocky soil when life hots up and the flesh finds it difficult it's opposed by the thorns When the deceits of worldly wealth and worldly riches come in and choke the word. And now we have lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self. And behind all of this we find the world of flesh and the devil. It's as basic as that. This is the opposition to God's word. Satan finds these three attacks very productive. Because he finds the weakness in us. We usually call it money, sex, and power, but that's basically what is going on here. You know, when God warned the people of Israel way back in Deuteronomy 17, when you were going to choose a king, make sure your king does not on the first hand have too much gold not too much money, secondly, not have too many wives, not fall temptations of sex, not have too many horses, in other words, not be too powerful, which was a sign in those days. So right from the beginning, God knew that the major temptations of leadership were money, sex, and power. And nothing has changed. It's still true for us today. Sadly, Solomon fell on all three of these. He had far too much gold, far too many wives, and he just got too He literally had too many horses. Now Paul here is not just talking about leadership, that these are the temptations of leadership, but this is in fact for all Christians and for all through the church. So we have in this chapter a sharp sharp contrast between the way Timothy is to focus his life and his ministry and the sort of way of life and ministry which we, we may well find in the churches which will characterize us right through this period called the last days. So Paul, first of all, warns about the effect of godlessness in our lives, verses 1 to 5, and godlessness in our ministry, verses 6 to 9. So we can say false values in the last days, verses 1 to 5. And first of all, we have lovers of self. Interesting that we are to love our neighbours as ourselves. See how close these two are coming? Very easy to put lovers of self in fact, above love of neighbor, because in fact, when love of God is replaced with love of self, neighbor tends to lose out altogether. The order is meant to be, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, but if you reverse that, and put self at the top and God at the bottom, the neighbor somehow just disappears, because love of self just pushes it all out. Boastful, proud, abusive, he says. An inflated view of oneself leads to contempt for others. Neighbor just doesn't even get a look in if God, you see, is not in his rightful place, then all relationships go astray and all relationships are affected. The next five words in this list are all uh, really in a sort of family context, but the church life is meant to be the family of God and reflect family values and link with our heavenly Father's disobedience literally unpersuadable, you can't persuade the person to do what is right ungrateful, literally no thanks, it's the word meaning no thank you we try to teach the children their P's and Q's what do you do when a little five-year-old girl says, I don't have to say thank you because I know how to get what I want you're not allowed to inflict punishment on little children nowadays, are you? you have to keep your hands in your pockets (laughs) Unholy, literally no respect, no respect for God, no respect for parents, without love, literally heartless, utterly lacking in all human affection, unforgiving, implacable, just won't listen, can't be persuaded. Uh, What a lovely home, what a lovely church, when that characterizes what's going on. Satan loves to see that sort of thing, all of that in the church. And the final group of seven, under this general heading of lovers of self, uh, they are actually wider than the just family, but they're all about relationships. Slander means speaking evil about other people, speaking not necessarily even evil, things that are not true. James has a whole chapter on this, doesn't he, in his letter. How quickly wrong words spread. We talk about the grapevine, don't we? It's often sour grapes that's on that grapevine, isn't it? When wrong things are picked up, well, I heard it said so-and-so, but it must be true. And it wasn't true! What damage is done to a church? It can be humorous sometimes, I remember. We had, shortly after we came down to Westbourne, uh, we'd never lived in the seaside before, so we bought ourselves a little boat to enjoy a day off, as it says in Mark chapter 6. They went away by a lonely, to a lonely place by themselves in a boat, which is the ideal day off. Anyway, we bought this nice little boat, and I discovered about two or three years later that it was going around the church. People were saying, I don't think the PCC ought to buy a boat for the vicar. <laughs> well, of course they hadn't. We bought it ourselves. Slander, you see. Just saying something's not true and it goes right through the church, doesn't it? Uh, no self-control and brutal or violent temper. Not lovers of the good. Treacherous. You cannot trust them. How awful when you can't trust somebody. Something told in confidence suddenly goes right round the church. Yes, I know that happens on soaps. Whenever you see on a soap somebody says, you will keep this to yourself, won't you? You know by the end of the week the whole of the street will know about it. But that shouldn't be the case of the church, should it? We should be able to trust one another. Rash, no thoughts, not re- reckless in thought and word, conceited, we'll be back where we started at the beginning of the, of the list. No self-control, selfish. It looks like a church, but actually it's a group of people or some people worshipping themselves, lovers of self. Then there's lovers of money, or rather the things that money can buy. You see, when the creator loses his rightful place, then that place is taken by created things. And created things become more important, manufactured things. But the church is not immune to this we can still hanker after things. You know, we would really grow properly if we had better chairs in the church. We'd really grow properly if we had a good PA. We would be really the growth, the church would expand if we had a new PA and those lovely PowerPoint pictures up on the screen uh, during the service and all the hymns. We'd we'd be much grow better if we had a bigger building. We can easily hanker after things Instead of reckoning, nothing wrong with any of those things. I use PowerPoint myself and I'm preaching uh, quite often if they have the projection facilities. But you see, it's God's Word that's the key to the growth of the church. And we have to say, if only God's Word was preached properly, if only God's Word was preached and believed, then we'd see this church take off. That's how God works. I've mentioned Proclamation Trust already and the conviction that I was given certainly from Proclamation Trust and I've certainly carried that right through my ministry. It's the conviction that the Word of God does the work of God. It's God who works through His Word in our lives and in our churches. That's that's what makes the difference. And we can easily hanker after other things and say, if only, and pin our hopes on material things then thirdly there's lovers of pleasure literally lovers of hedonism which is a word we understand which is actually the word here we recognise this in our own culture but it's more subtle inside the church isn't it because basically it means lovers of what I like what I prefer well of course I like the old hymns No, well, I like the new hymns I like comfy seats I like short sermons I don't like long sermons <laughs> I like lots of stories in the sermon. I like visual aids. I like uh, discussion groups rather than the teaching. I like... It's almost as if the enjoyability of something is the criteria as to whether it's right or wrong, as to whether it's important. Mind you, we can go overhead on this. You know, welcome to St Agatha's. We have the coldest church, the hardest seats, the longest sermons. We must be good, so come and join us. The, the, we don't have to go to completely the opposite direction. But it's very easy, to, it's subtle, isn't it, to get sucked into this. What people like has a place, especially in evangelism. You're not going to make much impact on evangelism unless you are, there's going to be some common meeting ground. What people like is important, but what directs us must be at the Word of God. The criteria must be... God's word. So we have an unholy trinity, lovers of self, lovers of many, lovers of pleasure. And Paul, in contrast, says, Join me in suffering for the gospel, be not ashamed of my chains, and flee the evil desires of youth. Self-centered spirituality denies its its power. Power to change lives. The power to go for the false instead of the true. Power which does not save lives, as we shall see in verses 6 to 9. Evangelism, which is not evangelism at all, because it doesn't actually bring people into the kingdom. What then is the true power of Godliness? It's the power to do what God wants. power to change our lives in accordance with God wants. If God alone is king, then he has a right to give orders. And that's to all of us. If God is king of kings and lord of lords, he doesn't have to apologize. He didn't say to Jonah, uh, if you've got time, Jonah, i quite like to spend a, a couple of weeks if you could just nip across to Nineveh and if you wouldn't mind just explaining to them. He said, go! And Jonah went that way. God has a right to give orders, doesn't he? And putting God first means acknowledging that he has a right to give orders and obeying his orders. That's what being a believer means. That's what worship is. Worship is not singing. God is not looking for a, a choir in heaven. He's looking for those who have put him first. Worship is obeying God, acknowledging his worth as head over all, and it means to obey him and submit to him. So true worship is not singing in tune. True worship is doing what God wants, even when we don't want to. In fact, true worship is seen in not doing something God has shown wrong even when we actually want to do it. To say, I I want to do this, but I know it's wrong, so I'm not going to do it. That is worship. That is acknowledging that he has a right. And especially when we want to do something, what does the Bible talk about? The pleasures of sin for a short while. But if God says no, and I want to say yes, but because God is God and I too say no, then that is worship. That is worship. How does that come about? Well, it comes about the Holy Spirit leading us to go the way that God has shown us. The spirit of power and love and self-control, which is what Paul speaks about in chapter 1. As Romans says, as Paul says in Romans 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you say no when you know it's wrong, and God has said no when you too say no. If you by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led to do this by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's how we know that we are sons of God. The world is pulling us one way; the Spirit is pulling you the other way. Who are you going to follow? This is not about guidance. This is about obedience. The Spirit says, "Don't go that way." go this way and I say I want to go that way but I will go that way even though I don't want to that is obedience that is worship that is a power of love and self-control that is following God's word denying the power as it says in chapter 3, verse 5, denying the power, having the form of God, but denying the power, is effectively saying, I will not let you change me, because I don't want to change. True worship is going with the Spirit. So that's false values in the last days, then false ministry briefly in the last days, verses 6 to 9, or um, we might say evangelism, how not to do it, I think that's, I'm quoting Dick Lucas again, evangelism, how not to do it, this is a good example in these verses, namely first of all target the vulnerable, then tell them what they want to hear, and finally give them a study course which will do nothing, no good to them at all because they won't become Christians. That's basically what these these verses 6 to 9 are all about. Now, just a word that's not um, a slur on women here at all, we have to realize the place women had in in those days. In fact, it was the advent of the Christian Gospel that gave women their rightful place, which is that of equality with men. Women were nothing, they had no rights at all in those days. They were therefore particularly vulnerable to this particular sort of approach. It's not a description of their moral state here, and nor is it a description of their state peculiar to women. Uh, I'm sure Paul's point is that evangelism finds a ready response uh, on those who are feeling marginalized uh, and, uh, and, and, and of this particular uh, approach which is going to lead them to, to look as if it's good, but in fact it, it will not, it'll, their folly will be clear to everyone because although they make some sort of profession, it isn't it isn't genuine Christianity, it comes at the end of it. Why? Because they never actually learn the truth. It says there in verse 7, they never learn the truth. And Paul contrasts this to Jannis and Jambres, two of the Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses way back uh, before the Exodus. They tried to outsmart him, but in the end, uh, their word failed. The prophetic word of Moses succeeded. Now the apostolic word is again being challenged by pseudo-evangelists who fail... Because no one becomes a real Christian, so no one is saved. And notice, they don't oppose Paul, they oppose the truth. That's how they're recognised. They're opposing the truth. So, to encourage Timothy and to stimulate him, Paul then moves on to true values in the last days. But you, verse 10, which comes again in verse, I forgot where it also comes again, verse 14, is it but you, uh, this this contrast between what other people are going to be doing, but you, Timothy, have got a a different uh, way. Now, what is rather poignant is that whereas verses 1 to 5 are basically self-seeking, what I like, what I want, what pleases me, what I want to do, as Paul moves over to, to underline the values that the believers, both leaders and, and members of the church alike, are to follow, it actually sometimes works out to our detriment. It can work out quite the opposite. It doesn't work out all that very nice. Once again, we see the theme of continuity, which we recognized in chapter 1, And now emerges again here in in, in chapter 2, where Timothy got it from and who he's to pass it on to. You know you can trust it and you've got to hold it firmly and pass it on. And this is true with regard to to the values and to the ministry which Paul is encouraging Timothy to follow. My teaching, first of all, you know about my teaching, the apostolic teaching, to be guarded and passed on. The true faith, the teaching of Jesus, passed on to the apostles, to be passed on to others, and not to be tampered with, uh, to be guarded and passed on faithfully. My way of life, not so much lifestyle as way of working. I think this probably is in contrast to verse 6, we're talking about worming their way into homes. That's not Paul's style, that's not the way he's saying. It's in complete contrast to that. The way Paul went about things, which was uh, often to his detriment, but really had, was, was his aim to please uh, have Christ first, and to please Christ, and to know him and the power of his resurrection. My purpose, we get echoes of this in several of the other letters. Philippians speaks of pressing on towards the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. Colossians speaks of striving to build up people in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians speaks of uh, uh, our aim is to please him. Complete contrast to lovers of self, you see. That's Paul's purpose. What a contrast. Lovers of self is just do what I like. Please yourself. Go and go with the flow. If it matters to you, then go with it. No, it's not a question of pleasing ourselves. The purpose is to please him, to satisfy the commanding officer. And my faith, more of that, in fact, uh, tomorrow morning when we look at uh, chapter 4, his patience, his love, his endurance. And that's how we should treat the awkward ones. <laughs> it's easy to be patient and loving and, uh, and sticking with the people we like, isn't it? But it's the awkward ones, the difficult ones, the people we don't get on with, people who rub us up the wrong way, the pains in the neck I spoke about earlier this morning. The words there are patience, love, and endurance. Again, phrases we wish weren't there. Uh, we wish it was a little bit more straightforward than that. There have been several examples in the letter which, which Timothy will have to deal with. These oppositions of false teaching, mentions of quarreling, of godless chatter, of gently teaching those who oppose him. And then rather like in Hebrews 11, the list suddenly changes. and With no break, no pause for breath, just as, as in Hebrews 11, uh, the chapter of the list of, uh, of, of the heroes of faith is a tremendous list. And suddenly you hang on, say, hang on a minute, is this the same list? Suddenly talking about being sawn in two and in deserts and caves and killed and what... And there's a, no, no hint of a breath, as it were, between the, the glorious part of the ministry and the and suffering. And just like that, Paul moves almost seamlessly from, from one to the other. You know about my patience and my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings, what happened to me in Antigone, etc. And, and he's moved into that area that we just wish wasn't there. When you think of all the things that happened to Paul, the riots, the fierce opposition he had, at Lystra, which was Timothy's home, that was where he was lynched and left for dead outside the city. Do you know Paul went back there twice? Would you go back twice when you've been lynched and left for dead outside the town? I think not. I think we'd find an excuse for going somewhere else. Paul goes back twice to Lystra. There's an earthquake, there was a storm at sea, there was a shipwreck, there was false imprisonment. And he says, and all of these the Lord rescued me. Not, not prevented them from happening, which is the way we would, we would look at it. we say, surely if you loved me you wouldn't have let that happen. No. He rescued me, the God, Lord took, brought me through it. I came through the difficult time and out the other side. And here I am, Timothy, still alive to tell the tale, though, in the next chapter... He knows the end is very near. And then just as we are read, the reader is glad that he's not in the ministry and Timothy is wishing that he wasn't, verse 12 jumps up and hits us in the face. Hang on a minute, I'm talking about everybody, not just the clergy. All, all who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may from time to time be persecuted. No, actually he says it will be persecuted. It will happen doesn't say it's going to happen always, all the time, but it will happen in different ways and will hurt us in different ways. Isn't it amazing that, that God en- encouraged Paul at the very beginning of his ministry by sending him a message go Ananias, go into that room where this blind man can't see and tell him he's going to be the most famous preacher in all of history tell him he's going to write letters which will be read 2,000 years later tell him he's the most marvellous man that I've, I've called that he's the one I love and I want him to do tremendous things for me no, tell him he's going to suffer for me that was Paul's call, isn't that astonishing? that was Paul's ordination retreat Tell him of the great things. I want him to suffer. Lord, I thought you loved me. Yes, I do love you. And that's why I trust you. And I want you to suffer for me. We wish that wasn't there, don't we? It's not what we want to see. He goes on in verse 13 to say that all false teachers, um, namely who will avoid this persecution. They think they're getting better and better and better. In fact, they're getting worse and worse and worse. There's growth where false teachers are around. But it's growth the wrong way. It's not achieving. An ironic contrast between the false values of pleasing self and the true values of pleasing God but probably having to suffer for it. True values in the last days. And then true gospel ministry in the last days verses 14 through to 17 and the focus here is on the centrality of that word remember I told you earlier on on Friday evening about the deafening silence about uh, the, the, all the things that, that, that seem important in, in the churches today which are not mentioned at all in these pastoral letters Paul's final advice the future leaders of the church of what is most important well clearly what is most important you must focus on what is important you go on teaching the truth because you know where it came from you see here's the continuity you can trace the chain back what you've learned where you lear- who you learned it from you learned it from your family who'd been believing for some time they learned it from the scriptures because they discovered in the scriptures that the scriptures lead us to faith in God and where that came from it's God breathed You see, the chain is is an unbroken chain. God breathes his word. His word is written down. We trust the written down word. We learn it, we teach it, we pass it on. It's an unbroken chain of truth from the very mouth of God himself. All scriptures are God talking And you know this and you know where you learned it from, from Paul and from your family. So when he goes on to say what we taught you was consistent, he's speaking about himself and about his family. Now what Paul encourages Timothy is to go on being consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures because there was no New Testament at the time Paul is writing. It's becoming part of the New Testament. But as Timothy reads this letter, he's only got... I was going to say Genesis to Malachi, but their book didn't end with Malachi. It ended with two chronicles, because they bowed in a different order. But they had the Old Testament scriptures. And that was what able to make him wise unto salvation. Tragedy those who say, oh, I can't be bothered to preach the Old Testament today. The Old Testament is full of Christ. Jesus himself said, why don't you read this wonderful book? It's full of me. It's all about me. All about me why don 't you read it why don 't you study it? all about me indeed you can 't fully understand the only Jesus there is, which is the Jesus of the New Testament, unless you come at it from the starting point of the Old Testament. A lot of it 's taken for granted in the new, and you need it all will lead us to wise of salvation in Christ. So the gospel is the same news as when it first emerged. Um, I, you're not a Sunday school class or even a, a Cornhill class so I would not ask you where the gospel first emerged but of course it first emerged in Genesis 3 verse 15 where God promised that there would come a serpent crusher and I think it's Phil Jensen isn't it, who describes the Old Testament as the search for the serpent crusher every time a new baby was born in the line is this the serpent crusher is this the one who will crush the serpent they thought Solomon was the serpent crusher After 2 Samuel 7, God said, Your son will reign forever. When Solomon was made king, what did they all sing? May the king live forever. I guess most of the choir singing Zadok the priest haven't a clue what it really means. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, they anointed Solomon king and they all thought this was the Messiah. Because if he's the Messiah, he'll live forever. So may you be the one who's going to rescue God's people. May you live forever. Well, he didn't live forever. There's only one who lives forever. And when Gabriel came to Mary, he said to Mary... Mary, 2 Samuel 7 is just about to come true. You read it. Compare Luke 1 with 2 Samuel 7. It's word for word the same. At last the serpent crusher has arrived, and he alone will reign, and his kingdom will never have an end. That's the same gospel, you see. Way back in Genesis 3, the same gospel will go on right through to the end of the ages. And certainly the wise reaction to God's word is to be saved by faith in Jesus. And that's what the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is all about. The scripture is not a thesaurus of helpful hints, but it's a book about Jesus. And that concern should control our use of the scripture. How often have you heard people say, and I've sadly heard this far too often, oh, you can use the Bible to prove anything you want. The Bible itself will not agree with that. Maybe you can use the words on a page to prove whatever you want. That's not what the Bible is. It's not words on a page. It's God's breathed words, and he says it will achieve my purposes. Never mind your purposes. If you want to use the Bible for your purpose, that's up to you. But the Bible will achieve my purposes. That's why I sent it. Isaiah 55. Nor is it a sort of jigsaw puzzle where you put the pieces in a different order, you can have a different picture. Nor is it a sort of enigma code. If you can crack the code, then you can lock all the secret messages. Now again, I learned from PT many years ago, we need to submit to the Word of God, not just use it. We submit to the Word of God. We sit under, the preacher sits under the Word of God. He doesn't control the Word of God. The preacher is subject to the Word of God. If you say it can prove it, what well, you like it, you're treating it as just words on the page. In fact, the Bible is an urgent message. It's much more like 999 than 118118. The Bible is a call for a rescue from a, a serious emergency. The Bible is not saying, what number would you like me to give you? That's not what the Word of God is. And which is why this stress on continuity is so important, That it has not changed. God speaks his truth way, way back in the full knowledge that his word will apply to every age. It does not need correcting as time goes by. The Renaissance in the 16th century thought, well, we've got the birth of a new truth now, so we can adapt it. In the 18th century, the Enlightenment said, oh, we've got new truth. We've come out of darkness now into light. The 20th century science said, well, we've got a new way of doing things, so we don't have to follow the Bible. And now in the 21st century, postmodernism says, well, we can now leave the old ways behind. And the result of this is God's word is referred to, but not submitted to. It's consulted, but it's not followed. It's worshipped, but not obeyed. And if I've spoken that too fast, you want to write it down, come and see me afterwards. <laughs> you see, what Timothy needs, and what Timothy needed then, and what we need today, is confidence in God's word. And I have to say, I'm sorry if when I preach, my confidence comes across as arrogance. Put that down for the sinfulness of the preacher, but not for the weakness of the Word. I'm thrilled by God's Word. And I'm afraid when I get excited, I talk fast. As I was talking to David Jackman just before in the break, and the alternative is to be bored by the Bible and speak slowly. And I don't think that is really what quite what God wants. God's Word is truth. It's not only sufficient to enable uh, Timothy to cope, It's also adequate and reliable tool to enable him to fulfill his call. The work is hard, but the tools are adequate. And there's his task in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Teaching, we know nothing until God teaches us. We cannot know God's mind until God tells us his mind. We know nothing until God teaches us we can have all sorts of ideas but until God teaches us so the task of the pastor the task of the 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 Bible student the task of the the witness speaking to the other person over the garden fence is to speak the truth to teach the truth of God's word rebuke this is much harder because people like new ideas, but they, don't want, they want to hang on to the old ideas. They don't mind taking on board a new idea, but they'd like to keep hold tight with the, the uh, old idea that they had before. But in fact, we have to rebuke the error. I'm sorry, this is the truth. You cannot hold that. You've got to abandon that idea. That is wrong. This is what the Bible says. Now, actually abandon the old idea. They don't like that. People would much rather say, this is a great new insight. But of course, I still think, God loves us all. It'll all be all right in the end, you know? They just not sit comfortably with the truth of the cross. In regard to revelation of the truth of God, we have to teach the truth and rebuke the error. We have to correct, that is, we also teach not just what to believe, but how to put that into practice, to correct behavior, and also train, correct wrong behavior, and train in righteous behavior. So see the balance in this very neat sentence of the negative and the positive. Rebuking and correcting error teaching and training truth and righteousness. And for this, the Scripture is adequate, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can still have confidence that the Old Testament will teach Christ, that Scripture as a whole would teach and train us in righteousness, in right belief, and in right behavior. And then comes the sting in the tail as we come to verse 17, rather two stings in the tail. Now, I'd always assumed, as we got to verse 17, let me read it first, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I always assume that here we have the man of God with the right tools for the job. As somebody once said, he's um, rather like a plumber, who has got the right tools in his bag, and he knows which uh, tools to, to bring out. He's, uh, he's, he's, got, he's got the right tools. He may be thoroughly equipped. In fact, Paul uses the word ready uh, twice in this, in this particular verse. So that the man of God may be ready fully ready for all his good work. So Timothy has got his bag of tools and he knows which tool to bring out to apply at the right moment. That's how I've always seen it verse. The only trouble is, that's not what this verse says. So let's have another look at it. It's not saying he's got the right tools for the job. It's saying that he himself is ready. So the scriptures are not a bag of tools that he's carrying around with him but that which is ready is the man of God the word <coughs> excuse me the word must change the pastor because only then is he fit for his work the word must impact upon the person witnessing only then are they in a fit state to witness to the neighbor and the big challenge then is am i ready The encouragement for this, of course, is what makes me ready is not a course in management skills, but the Word of God. The Word of God is adequate to train the pastor to do his work so that the pastor himself is ready. He himself is trained. Well, that's the first thing in the tale, but the second thing in the tale is you all sit back quite comfortably saying, saying, thank goodness I'm not ordained. The second thing in the tale is you ask the question, who is the man of God? Well, the answer is Everybody. It's not just talking to the man up front whether or not he's wearing a dog collar. It's everybody. Man of God is used of prophets in the Old Testament but it's uh, basically all Christians. Without the word of God ruling our lives we are not ready to be ruled by his Holy Spirit. Our lives are not complete. No one is complete without the word of God being the foremost influence in our lives. Challenging us rebuking us, correcting us, training us, equipping us, all the things that it looks as if we're there equipped to do for other people, Paul is saying, actually, the Bible's going to do it to you, Timothy, and to each one of us. That's how God speaks, so that our lives may indeed reflect Jesus. Only only when the Word of God has changed us will our lives reflect Jesus. As I said earlier, nobody can see Jesus, they can only see us. There's that lovely chorus written by the uh, lovely blind Christian, um, Marilyn Baker. Jesus, you are changing me. By your Spirit, you're making, here it comes, me like you. That's what the Spirit's doing. Oh, oh, it's got a difficult job. Somebody said every Christian should have a little badge saying, be patient with me, God hasn't finished yet. It's the task of the Spirit to make us into clones of Jesus, and He does that by His Word. Because why? Because the Word of God does the work of God, as the advertisement says. Simple. <laughs> <laughs> it is as basic as that, but it is profound as that. And then the life of Jesus may be actually seen in us as His Word corrects us.